Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the Gospel according to Mark, the sixth chapter where we are going to be considering verses 30 through 44. It's Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 30 and reading through verse 44. You can find that passage on page 987 in your pew Bibles. While you are making your way there, please allow me to just briefly remind you of where we are in our look together at Mark's gospel account. You undoubtedly have very firmly in your mind at this point that Mark's mission here is, of course, to get before you for your consideration the biblical Jesus. That is, to make sure that we, and all who read this account for that matter, fully understand that Jesus Christ has very clearly revealed himself to us in his word. That is, of course, the only Jesus that there is for us to see and know. And Mark has endeavored here to make him, that is, the biblical Jesus, known. And we've been looking together at that revelation for many months now. Last week, the portrait of our king gained even more vivid dimension as we considered his glorious kingdom and the subsequent clash of his kingdom with that of this world. And as we considered that clash or that conflict between kingdoms, we saw very quickly that truly this is a war. These are most certainly not like-minded kingdoms. The kingdom of light stands entirely opposed to the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of Almighty God is far, far superior to to the kingdom of this world, or what we call the kingdom of self. And we saw this conflict then begin to take even more shape here in Mark's narrative of the providential death of John the Baptist. And I mentioned to you last week that it seemed at least a little odd on the surface that Mark places this story of the death of John the Baptist here in this sixth chapter sort of sandwiched between Jesus sending out the 12 disciples to share in the ministry and the work of the kingdom and Jesus' own active work and the advancement of his kingdom. However, as is always the case, I think any confusion is cleared up rather quickly when we consider the full context of what's going on here. As the message of the kingdom, the gospel, goes forward into this world, it is this clash or this conflict between kingdoms that begins to emerge. And that conflict really is given flesh for us here as we see it taking place upon the very body and life of John the Baptist. As Jesus' fame began to grow and to spread throughout that region, we of course saw that many who were healed both spiritually and physically began to follow Jesus Christ. Many were called and they followed. However, there were also many for whom the call of the kingdom or the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the king, brought about a very different response. 
And we saw that response fleshed out for us as Herod, though intrigued with John and his message, actually resorted to murdering John to protect his own weak and tiny kingdom. In an unbridled example of hedonistic wickedness, Herod had made the very foolish, very drunken promise following his niece slash stepdaughter's seductive dance before him and some of his high officials. He offered her up to half his kingdom. And his wife Herodias seized upon the opportunity to then, of course, ask for the head of John the Baptist. She hated John for his openly calling her and Herod on their wickedness and being married because she had been his brother Philip's wife. And these two warring kingdoms then clashed upon the body of John the Baptist. And as the dust of that conflict settled, I think we were able to see some truly foundational principles here in Mark that we must know. First, we saw that sin is most certainly seductive. It makes outrageous and radical promises that it can never and in fact has no intention of ever delivering upon. In fact, they are bold-faced lies. The kingdom of darkness is built upon them. The kingdom of this world promises us life on our terms. Autonomy. We have it in this kingdom. Come, drink your fill. You want your own kingdom? Come, we'll help you establish it. Nothing's more important than you are. As the siren call of the kingdom issues forth into the world, those who are but the dupes of Satan are just made even more firm in their slavery and bondage to sin and death under the guise of having things their own way. However, the kingdom of God promises life in Jesus Christ. Life in union with Him by faith. Where we are promised that we too will be slaves. We will be slaves of righteousness. And this kingdom, of course, delivers upon its promise. For those who run from the kingdom of this world into the loving arms of Jesus Christ, the King, and his beautiful big sky kingdom of God, this world holds no sway. Jesus has come to deliver us from sin, from its consequences, and from all the power of the devil. He has come to restore this world that has been broken by sin. This world where so many, just like Herod, Seek not to just oppose the kingdom of God, but to snuff it out entirely because of the very real threat that it brings to their own tiny kingdoms. However, what becomes clear here as these kingdoms clash is that the kingdom of this world is quite powerless to stop the advancement or even to thwart the movement of the magnificent kingdom of God. And as Herod sought to end the threat by taking the life of John, he truly only played out his own sad little role in the history of redemption. 
as John willingly decreased that the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory would increase. I think the glorious principle here becomes even clearer. Nothing will stop the advancement of this king and this kingdom. Beloved, I want to ask you this morning as we begin to dig in, do you praise God for that fact? That you're part of this kingdom. This kingdom stands far, far above all other kingdoms. And Mark wants desperately for us to see it. He wants for us to know it. And he wants for us to celebrate God's wonderful matchless grace and even making us a part of it. So do you see it? Do you see this kingdom? Do you hear its message? Have you embraced its king? If you have not, if it has somehow still sort of escaped your notice this morning, in the text that is before us, Mark gives to us yet another wonderful opportunity to see his amazing grace again as he works to even further clear away the haze that surrounds so much of the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. And in so doing, Mark reveals to us the long-awaited great shepherd king of Israel. So I'd like you to follow along with me in your Bibles as I read our text this morning from God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Again, I will pick up with verse 30 and read through 44. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a desolate or to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitudes saw them departing. And many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place. And already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set it before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. 
And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. This is the word of our Lord, and may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word this morning, and we pray that you would open us, open our eyes to its glory. May we see what we need to see here to live more for your glory and your honor. And Father, we ask that through the power of your spirit, we would see and hear and know and understand these things for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things that Mark has already made very, very clear for us is that there was a whole lot of confusion that surrounded the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. We, of course, saw that last week. As he emerged and he gained a a large following, the wild speculation that followed proves the confusion as to who he was. Mark tells us that some thought that perhaps Jesus was Elijah. And that one will come up again in chapter 9. Others speculated that perhaps Jesus was yet another one of the great prophets of old, come to speak in those familiar terms of thus saith the Lord. Herod, in his fear, thought that this must be the vengeful ghost of John the Baptist, somehow come to torment his already tortured conscience. Clearly, There was much confusion, to say the least. However, praise be to God, by the grace of God, Mark is under no such confusion. He knows that this indeed is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he desperately wants for us to see that. We must see that, right? Jesus revealed himself to those who possessed eyes of faith. He did not do these things off in a corner. His revelations of himself, by and large, were very public. And as Mark adds more beautiful color and very vivid dimensions to this portrait of who Jesus is, we get to see things about him that should serve to lead us into our own lives of gratitude and exuberant worship. And one of those things that I think we can clearly see this morning is that we begin to get a sense here of the vast and measureless dimensions of the wonderful grace of God. Have you noticed that as this story unfolds? The grace of God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is on full glorious display here in the gospel according to Mark and especially in the text that is before us this morning. It is my hope and my aim this morning to point out to you just a couple of things here that I think we should see in this very well-known story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. He's feeding them specifically in this deserted place with but five loaves of bread and two fish. And as is always the case, my prayer is that we will be encouraged in our faith and that our appetites 
for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ would, of course, grow as a result. And the first thing that I believe that we must see here as Mark reveals to us even more of Jesus Christ and his wonderful kingdom is the compassion that Jesus Christ displays here. Do you see it? We see it first and foremost in his manner towards his disciples. They've now returned from this sort of short-term missionary work that he had sent them on. And so they gather together with Jesus to report to him all that they were able to do and teach. And we know that they were able to cast out demons and they were able to heal the sick and they taught with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus, in response to their labors being reported to him, instantly recognizes that these men are wearied by their work. They're tired, exhausted. Mark tells us that they had not really even had time to pause and get something to eat. And so Jesus, compassionately, invites them to go with him off to a deserted place. He recognizes their weariness and he desires to give them rest. Though I think that we will see that what Jesus is providentially setting up here is far, far greater than just physical rest. So he takes them to a deserted place and that word is significant. Perhaps you heard it as we were reading. It's repeated three times just in this section. He offers to go to a deserted place. They go to a deserted place. They're in a deserted place. It's repeated again and again and again. And that word is significant. That word that is translated there as a deserted place is the same word that is translated elsewhere as wilderness. It's the opposite of the Greek word polis, which denotes a populated place. You probably recognize the root there, right? We call cities a metropolis. It's a center of of population. This word is the opposite of a populated place. It's Aramia. And the word used here is a solitary place. It is a lonely place. It is a deserted place. And as I said, it's translated elsewhere as wilderness. So Jesus is suggesting to the disciples, let us go to the wilderness. A motif that we have seen come up already a couple of times in Mark. Let us go to the wilderness so that you can find rest. It's compassion on the part of Jesus. In fact, I would tell you that it is probably far more compassionate than we might even think at first glance. It is certainly more compassionate than these tired, exhausted disciples think that they are going to receive from the hands of Jesus. The rest Jesus will point them to is much, much greater than just some kicking back and getting some much needed sleep. Jesus will be pointing them to an eternal rest that is far too great, in fact, to be measured in earthly terms. He is compassionate. We also see his compassion here in his response 
to this massive gathering crowd. You can almost imagine the disciples' collective sigh as this boat approaches what was supposed to be a deserted place and they find yet another massive crowd waiting for them on the shore. Mark tells us in verse 33, but the multitude saw them departing and many knew him, that is, they knew Christ, and they ran there on foot from all the cities and they arrived before them and came together to him. So much for rest, right? Another massive crowd. And as they arrive, the crowd does what the crowd has been doing all along. It begins to push in towards Jesus. Faith drew them to him. And how does Jesus respond? Well, he loves them. He had compassion on them. And so he began to teach them the compassion of Jesus Christ. It's displayed again and again and again towards his followers. We even see a little bit of it with the disciples, don't we? Because these disciples don't grumble. They minister right alongside of their master to the late hour. And as the hour grew late, they thought, well, now perhaps it's time to get some rest. And so they went to Jesus and pointed out the late hour and the deserted place, the desolation that was around them. And they said, Jesus, perhaps it would be best if these people began to make their way back towards the cities so that they can find nourishment and rest for themselves before it gets any later. And Jesus says, no, why don't you give them something to eat? And the disciples, forgetting all they had already witnessed, the miracles, the Authority of Jesus, the Father's declaration booming down from heaven, forgetting that their master was indeed God in the flesh, they become somewhat indignant at this point and say, in effect, do you have any idea what it's going to cost to feed these people? And Jesus then asks them what they have on hand, and the disciples, of course, answer, five loaves and two fish. And the stage is set for yet another unveiling here of the glorious identity of the Lord Jesus Christ that we just simply cannot afford to miss. And beloved, let me just say this to you this morning, that it is probably not the revelation that we are all very accustomed to thinking here as we hear this all too familiar story. If you're anything like me, you've heard this particular story many times Many times, and you've always thought to yourself, well, well, of course, right? Jesus is revealing his deity here again through the working of yet another miracle. And of course, that's not wrong, is it? At least in part. He is doing that here. Truly, the natural order of things does not allow for five loaves of bread and two measly fish to feed a crowd like this. 5,000 men alone, not counting women and children. This is certainly a supernatural event. And most certainly it does point us to Jesus' deity here. However, beloved, it is much more than just that. Jesus is revealing his full identity 
to his people. Yes, he is the son of God. Yes, he has control over nature and the creation itself. Yes, he as God can most certainly bend the creation to his holy will and his purpose. But this revelation is speaking to that rest that he had only just promised his disciples. I think we need to think on this. We need to see this. This revelation is adding yet another layer to the full glorious revelation of the identity of Jesus Christ. This truly is the great shepherd king of Israel. This is the promised one. I want you to look with me at the vernacular here. Before we dig into that, let's just look Let's just look to a few of those instances where we see what has been anticipated and what now is coming to fruition this day in the wilderness as Jesus feeds these people. Turn with me quickly in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 27. And I, in the, in the, just thinking about the time of it, I'm just going to pick up Numbers 27 with verse 23. Moses, a great leader in Israel, knows that he is nearing the end of his life. He knows because God has told him so. He's not going to be allowed to enter the promised land because of his sin and striking the rock. And so he is allowed to glimpse the promised land. And then God is going to call Moses home to his father's. And Moses, in an act of compassion here, in Numbers 27 cries out to God in verse 17 regarding the rebellious people who had been laid to his charge. He says to God, who may go out before them and go in before them? Who may lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord, now listen, may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And of course, we know that God named Joshua as the successor to Moses, surely we can see the parallels, right? It's there even in the name Joshua, salvation. It's something we hear again and again in the Old Testament, sheep without a shepherd. We heard it in today's reading. It comes up in the books of the Kings and the Chronicles. What's going on here, though, becomes very, very clear when we see it in light of Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. In verse 5, Ezekiel mentions that indeed the people were again sheep without a shepherd. The shepherds of Israel who were supposed to be there caring for the sheep of God's pasture, his people were not caring for them. They were busy feeding themselves. Caring for themselves, looking out for themselves, protecting only themselves while the sheep were dying and being devoured by wild beasts. And so God rebukes those false shepherds through his servant Ezekiel. But he does much more than that, he makes a promise. 
or I should say, he further expounds upon the great promise that he had made many, many years prior. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 22. Ezekiel 34, he says, Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in the land, and they shall know that I am the Lord. When I have broken their yoke, and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, and with them. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. Beloved, do you hear it this morning? I would prefer to go right into the great shepherd psalm this morning, Psalm 23. But I fear time will probably not allow it and the doxology that could be elicited from us would throw us out of our order of service this morning. But I trust that you see it. God saw the lack of care and compassion his people received from those who should have known better, the shepherds of Israel. And after calling them what they were, false shepherds, he promised the greatest great shepherd king to come from the line of David who would come and lead his people into the wilderness where he would feed them and give them peace and fill them with the yield of the land take away their prey status the great shepherd will give such protection and care that fear will be entirely done away with Mark wants you to see here that Jesus Christ is very clearly revealed as him. This is the Messiah. This is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the promised shepherd. And he is revealing himself as such and thus feeding his sheep in the wilderness. He has them there in the wilderness and he's providing all that he could, they could ever need. 
you see it, beloved? This is the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we cannot afford to miss it. I want to ask you something this morning. Has this revelation, this Jesus, the biblical Jesus, has the revelation of the biblical Jesus changed your approach to this life? Do you know this Jesus? If you don't, I'm asking you, what's holding you back? Did you come here this morning seeking rest like these weary disciples? Look at what they expect and then consider what they receive. They expected some sleep, physical rest. But Jesus pulls back the curtain before their eyes, before this crowd, and he reveals to them that their worries, their fears, their shame, their insecurities have been taken away forever. Because the shepherd has come. Do you see it? Maybe you're thinking, well, you know what? Perhaps someday I'll be given peace and rest and comfort, but not here. Not in this fallen world, not in this fallen body. And I would remind you that you speak like a wandering sheep, which you no longer are. You're not wandering. You're not prey for the kingdom of this world. You belong to the great shepherd. Your shepherd has come. He has thrown down the dominion and the power of Satan. In this war, in this clash, the end has already been sealed. Have you embraced this king and this kingdom by faith? If you have, here is your shepherd. I know I said I wasn't going to do it, but now I think I have to. I'm going to close this morning with the 23rd Psalm. And I want you to meditate on its rich, comforting truth like you never have before. I want you to meditate on it in light of what we are focusing on here in Mark chapter 6 this morning. Please, take some time this week to reflect on it. Listen to the psalmist. The Lord is is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I 
will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beloved sheep, behold the immeasurable grace of Almighty God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised great shepherd king of the people of God. Amen.